The following sermon was delivered by Pastor Frank Griffith in the Sunday morning service at Calvary Community Church in Brentwood, California. You'll find more information at calvarytruth.org. Good morning. Uh, We're going to start a new book today, the book of Philippians, if you'll turn there. The Apostle Paul wrote 13 of the New Testament letters. There are 27 letters 27 books in the New Testament, and Paul, the apostle, wrote 13 of them. And this is one of them. This is called a prison epistle because Paul wrote it from prison. As you know, probably know, Christ, uh, Paul was uh, in prison twice in Rome, and this was the first time he was in prison, and he wrote this letter to this church at Philippi. Philippians is what the people who lived in Philippi were called. I don't know what you call people living, who live in Knightson, but uh, that's what they were called. The, the people who lived in Philippi were Philippians. And uh, so Paul writes them a letter. He wrote this letter in just about 61 AD, which during his first prison time was between 60 and 62. So this is from the first century. And one of the things that happened in the first century, the way he wrote letters, they wrote letters back then, no email. No texting, just letters. And what they would always do is identify themselves first. And then they would identify who they're writing to by saying some nice things to them. And so you see this pattern in all the New Testament epistles, which are letters to specific individuals or churches. And this letter is from Paul to the church at Philippi. And so he begins by identifying himself and his partner who's writing with him, who was with him when he went to uh, Philippi. And he starts out this way. I'm reading from Philippians chapter 1. I know you've already heard the first 26 verses read in a very wonderful way, but I'm going to read to you the first few verses. Uh, Paul and Timothy, that's who's given credit for writing this letter. Paul, along with Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus. To all the saints in Christ who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons. Now, we've been going through Luke, and we usually would cover about 48, 58, 68 verses. Today, we're going to cover two verses in the book of Philippians, because this letter, you can read this letter in about about 10 minutes. If you speed read it, if you read it fast, you can read it in four and a half minutes. But if you take your time and think about every thing you're going through here, you can read it in 10 to 15 minutes very easily. So my challenge to you this week is that you would read this book every day for the next week. Four chapters, four short chapters. This is one of the most wonderful uh, epistles in the New Testament written by the Apostle Paul. And we're going to see some riches of Christ in this book as we go through it. But I just wanted to introduce the book and we'll just start with these first two verses. These first two verses answer three questions. And uh, the three questions are, who will take the gospel to the world? If you remember, Jesus gave this commission to his, the great commission to his disciples, who were very simple men, 12 guys, and one of them actually had bailed out because he turned on Christ. So there were 11 left. And when he gives them the great commission, he says to them, go and make disciples of all the nations. Now, when they heard all the nations, they probably thought of maybe three or four nations that were near them, but they had no concept of how large 
the earth is. And today, if, if you were to say, I'm going to travel the world to every nation in the world, people would look at you like, you've got to be kidding me. You're not going to make it. They would certainly say that to me and, and some of you. You'll never make it. You'll never get to every nation in the world. But the gospel has reached every nation. There's, there are a few unreached people groups where there is no gospel witness, but very few. And there are connections to those countries where the gospel is coming in. So he's going to answer the question, who's going to take the gospel to the world? And you're thinking, well, it's somebody, obviously somebody else, not us. And then the second question he's going to answer is, what difference will the gospel make as it goes into the world? And then finally, in verse 2, he's going to answer the question uh, that I have turned my page on my notes to find. Um, He's going to answer the question, what result will the gospel produce in those who receive it? What What kind of effect has it had in your life? What kind of effect has believing the gospel had in your life? Think about that for a second. I won't make you speak out, but just think about that for just a second. What kind of change, what kind of effects has the gospel had in your life? The Bible teaches that when God saves a person, he saves them. He begins, the the salvation experience begins when you believe on Christ, but it lasts for all eternity, and it lasts throughout all of life. All of life, he is saving you in a very specific way. It's called transformation or sanctification, and he's changing you through the gospel. By As you come to understand the gospel in a deeper way and you respond in faith, you are transformed into the image of Christ more and more. And I'm sure you've met some people that obviously carry the marks of transformation in their life because the gospel has had that impact in their life. But first of all, I'd like to look, notice in verse 1, the very first part of verse 1, who's going to take the gospel to the world? Well, he says, as he's writing this letter, he identifies himself and his, and his co-author, so to speak. He says, uh, Paul and Timothy, bond servants of Christ Jesus. The word bond servant is a translation of a word for slave, doulos. We're slaves of Christ. What does that mean? Well, over half the population in the Roman Empire at this time were slaves. Oh, they didn't, they weren't like slaves in America and some other parts of the world, but they were, they did not, they were not freemen. They didn't have freedom. They were owned by someone. You might be a doctor, a logger, or whatever, but you, you are not a freeman. Now, this was what, in fact, at Philippi, what happened, Paul was very well, was, was really mistreated and thrown into jail, and what they didn't know what the officials in, in, in Philippi didn't know was he was a citizen of Rome. He was a free man. He was born into that condition. And so when they found out, they tried to rush him out of town because they had broken the law in a serious way because they didn't treat him as a free man. But it was half the population, over half, were slaves. And so the idea of bond servant is someone owns you. And you don't have your own freedom. You can't do what you want. You do what your master says. And so Paul identifies himself along with Timothy as bondservants or slaves of Jesus Christ. They were owned by and subservient to a master. And that master is Jesus Christ. This is who is going to take the gospel to the world. It's going to be bond slaves. It's going to be those who understand and know that Christ has purchased them by his own blood 
And God owns them. He is your owner and master and Lord. This is why we seek to find out what his will is for our lives because we see him as master. We see Jesus Christ as our master and we want to live in obedience to his commands. And so when we read his commands, instead of saying, that's ridiculous, I'm not about to do that, we say, I don't think I understand this, but I want to understand it because I want to be obedient to my master, the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, how did he become your master? He purchased you. He bought you. And the price that he paid for you was his precious blood, which simply means the reason there's so much talk about blood in the New Testament in regards to the gospel is that it's a picture of violent death under judgment. Jesus took your place before the judgment of God and his blood was shed, which is a picture of a violent death under the judgment of God. That's what happened in the Old Testament with the... With the uh, sacrifices and their throats were slit and blood was everywhere why was that so that they would get the picture that the only source the only way they could be saved from their sin and their guilt was if if someone took their place and that's what these sacrifices were on a temporary basis but they had to keep coming back time after time after time offering a sacrifice but now the lamb of god has been slain and he's died a violent death under the judgment of god on your behalf and he purchased you So he owns you. He's your master. He's the one, he's a loving master. This is better than being a free man. This is being a truly free man because, person, because Jesus Christ is your master and Lord, and you can absolutely trust him. In the Septuagint, this idea of being a bondservant had a very special sense. The Septuagint is simply the Greek translation of the Old Testament. So this very same word, this Greek word that's, that doulos, which is used here, carried the sense of distance from, the depend, from de, our dependence upon God, that you were far from him. And it was kind of a horrific title for those in special service to God. Like Moses was a servant of the Lord. He could only do what the Lord told him to do, and he understood that. And you remember the end of his life? The Lord had told him to speak to the rock and water would come out to give water to the, 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 the Jews who were traveling through the wilderness. And if you can imagine two million people traveling through the desert, they need water, don't they? And so God tells Moses, here's what you do. You speak to the rock and water will come out. And that's what he did. But then they started complaining again later on. And so he decided he needed to get some more water. So he didn't even ask God this time. He just goes to the rock and he strikes it. Now, here's what's wrong with that. He didn't obey the voice of God. God told him to speak to the rock because this was a picture. This was a picture of dependence upon Christ as the source of our life. But it was an act of rebellion. It was an act of a lack of faith. And he was a servant of the Lord. So being a servant of the Lord means to be the fact that he is my master. I do what he tells me to do. I ran into something the other day. I think I brought a copy of this. Any of you ever, any of you exposed to the Heidelberg Confession, or Catechism, rather? The Heidelberg Catechism. The, the Heidelberg Catechism is, is fascinating. It's, it's the Catechism of the Dutch Reformed Church. The Dutch Reformed Church <clears throat> is a church that's made up primarily of people with, uh, from 
that are, are Dutch. <laughs> and as they say, as they've told me, if you're not Dutch, you're not much in, uh, in, in their settings. But it's a wonderful uh, catechism. Here's the first question. Now, some of you know the first question in the Westminster Catechism. What is the purpose of man? To love God and enjoy him forever. Or as John Piper says, to love God and enjoy him forever by loving God. Well, the, the Heidelberg Confession, the first question is, is much more personal, and this is it. What is your hope in life and death? And the answer is, my one hope in life and death is that I belong to Jesus, my Savior, my Savior, Jesus Christ. I belong to my Savior, Jesus Christ. I confess to you this morning, I'm very biased, and so when, when you hear me speak, I want to tell you my, I'm very biased. I belong to Jesus Christ, my Savior. That's my hope for life and death. My hope for, for the future, no matter how long it is or how short it is, is that Jesus Christ is my Savior, and I belong to him in life and death. And he's told me through his word that to be that to die is gain. This, in this book, the Apostle Paul says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. He said, actually, it'd be better for me if I died because I could be with Christ, but for your sakes, I'll remain so, I can, so that God can use me in your lives. Well, you see, Paul understood. They hadn't written the Heidelberg Confession yet, but he understood that. He, this is how he would answer the question. What is your hope in life and death? It's the fact that I belong to Jesus Christ. And that's our confession as believers. We belong to Jesus Christ. So many bad things happen in life. In fact, we like to traffic in those things. You know, that's why we watch the news. So much bad stuff happens and it's so interesting to us. But let me tell you something. It doesn't matter what happens in your life. This is true. You belong to Christ if you're a believer in life and in death. And you can have that confidence, your, that absolute confidence that you belong to him. Now, did you, really, did you know that you were a bond slave? You ever think in those terms that you're a bond slave? This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7. You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. You already have an owner, a master. And it's the Lord Jesus Christ. And in Galatians 1.10, he says, if I were still trying to please men, I would, be a, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. See, this is what bondservants of Christ do this. They please God instead of men. So if men want you to do one thing, but God says, this is my will for you, you obey him. You obey the triune God, the Father, Son, and Spirit. And so the, the, when the, first, the first question this answers is, who is going to take the gospel to the world? It's going to be bondservants of Jesus Christ. That's who they are. When you meet people that God has taken to other parts of the world or in our own city, wherever, taking the gospel, and that is their primary task and role in life is to share Christ with others. It's because they are bondservants of Jesus Christ. They belong to Christ. The second question he answers in the last part of verse 1 is, what difference will the gospel make as it goes out into the world. Well, in these words, he says, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi. He's writing this letter to them. Who are they? These are believers. And he calls them saints. I've told you the story about a friend of mine, grew up a good Catholic. His folks are very strong Catholic, Irish Catholics. And, 
and he got saved and, and uh, came, was a, a part of Valley Bible Church in the early days. And so one time he started to leave in the evening and his mom said, where are you going? He says, oh, I'm going over to meet with the saints. And she says, what? You're going, you're going to that church and you think those are saints? We see the Bible doesn't use saints the way the Catholic Church does. The Bible uses saints this way. You have been set apart to God. You have been set apart to God, and therefore you are a saint. That's what the word saint means. It means set apart. And God has set you apart to himself. Who do you belong to? You belong to Jesus Christ. I don't care if you're a Democrat, Republican, a, a, or a sane person or whatever. You belong to Christ. You've been set apart to him, and you're saints. Now, there are saints and ain'ts. You know, there are those who, are, who have actually believed on Christ and been set apart, and then there are people who have not yet believed on Christ, and they still haven't been set apart to Christ. But we are set apart to Christ when we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and we become saints. And that's exactly how the Bible always uses it. The saints are not special, super-duper Christians. They are Christians. All believers are saints. You've been set apart to God. Now, you can be a disobedient saint. You can be an uninformed saint and not even know that you are. But the fact is, when you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you've been set apart to Christ. And you are bondservants of Christ. And so the answer to this question, what difference will the gospel make? Well, it's going to turn people into saints. It's going to turn, you, it's going to turn those who believe it into saints, set apart to Christ. We don't make statues of them. We haven't made any statues of any of you. We don't elevate you. My granddaughter, who read the scriptures, called me pastor. I've never heard her do that before. But she said, well, it would have been odd to say, just ask Grandpa. <laughs> and so, but we, we're, we don't have, you know, the church doesn't have any um, honorific titles. All the titles in scripture of people among the saints are, they are, they are titles that refer to function. They're functional titles. We have elders, and I'll tell you what that means in a second. We have bishops, we have pastors, we have those, these are terms that are used, deacons and so forth. But they're all t- titles of function. They're not honorific titles. We don't say most holy reverend. In fact, we don't even use the word reverend, and here's why. The word reverend means feared. We believe that God's the only one you should fear. And he's the one you should fear, but fear in the, in the right sense that you exalt him above all others. And so the difference it's going to make as the gospel goes out, it's going to make saints. The people are going to be consecrated and subjects to Yahweh and his service. I don't have to say to you, you know, maybe God's calling you to serve. I don't have to say that. I have to say this. God has called you to serve. If he's called you to himself, he has a purpose in your life. He wants you to serve Christ by serving his people in some way because you're a bondservant. And you might not like that. I wouldn't get a tattoo saying that because it wouldn't make any sense to most people. I wouldn't even get a tattoo. <laughs> but, but this isn't some honorific title. It's just this is who you are. You're bondservants of Jesus Christ. You belong to him, and he wants to use you. 
And so this is why you have all these, so many times uh, when the letters are written, they're written to the saints in Jesus Christ, in Christ Jesus, as he does here. To all the saints in Christ Jesus. So where are you? You're in Christ Jesus. That's, that's what makes you a saint. Now, you're also a Knightson, so notice what he says here. To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi. So your position, you're in Christ, and your location on the earth is Knightson, and their location on the earth was Philippi. He says, including the overseers and deacons, even them. The word overseer is typically translated bishop, and bishop simply means it's the Greek word is episkopos. We get the, the, the Episcopalian church has a, 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 a church government that's an Episcopalian kind of government. But the Bible says that there are supposed to be those within the flock who take on the responsibility of overseeing the this, this, this flock. Epi means over and skopos, as it sounds, means to watch for, to care for. Pastors, bishops, elders are all terms that are used of the same men. But the point of all of them, if you look at them, is that they have to care for the flock. Do you, mean, you know what that means? They, act, they actually have to care about you. They have to love you. They have to esteem you because you're a follower of Jesus Christ. And so they would pray for you. And they would want to do anything they could to help you. That's what we are supposed to do. We have to be those who have had enough time walking with Christ that, that we recognize that we are to love his people and be willing to lay down our lives for his people. And so he writes to these men and he includes the, the overseers and the deacons. So overseers are those who have this responsibility as pastors and, and uh, elders. Elder speaks of their maturity. They have to, be a, have to reach a certain level of maturity. Their hair has to be gray and... Uh, <laughs> No, elders have to be mature, spiritually mature. You could be 30 and be spiritually mature, or 25. But you also have to be, uh, you are not only an elder, you're a pastor. You have to be a shepherd. So you have to care for the flock. I, I need to, I'll be honest with you, sometimes it's difficult. Sometimes you really want to withhold love from people. You probably don't believe this. But some people don't like me. And, and because I, I have to learn how to care more about what God thinks of me than anybody else. But there are times when it's very tempting to withhold love from people. But guess what? Jesus won't let us. It's our responsibility. It's our privilege to love you and care for you and do what we believe is the best of Christ's will for you. And so we preach the Bible, for example. You notice we do what's called expository preaching. We go through book after book after book, explaining the meaning of these words, which is God-breathed scripture, and we apply those things to our lives. That's our responsibility to, to feed the flock, and feeding the flock is feeding them with the word of God. And so we're to put in whatever effort it takes to do that. And so these saints in Christ Jesus are by and in Christ. We are becoming the people of God more and more as he changes us. You know, when this message first went out, this was in 61 AD when this book was written. 
Think of that, 61 AD, the first century. And by, um, by this time, there were, there were thousands of believers, not millions, but thousands. By the fourth century, there actually were thousands upon thousands of Christians. And that's why Christianity became the, the, the uh, official religion of Rome. That did a great damage to the church. And the church began going sideways because of that. It's a, you know, it's a good thing that we are not given an elevated position because we're Christians, because we need to remember that Christ is king, not us. And we walk in submission to him. So he says hello to the, the overseers and to the deacons. I, uh, this week, I don't know why, I was just overwhelmed with a thought. You know, Jesus in... In Matthew eleven twenty eight, uh, he says, "Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest." But then he immediately says, "Take my yoke upon you." Do you know what yoking an, an ox is like? No, you don't, do you? You know what it's like to put a, a harness on a horse or something like that? Well, the idea of yoke was used by teachers in the first century to say. If you want to learn from me, you have to be yoked to me. That is, you have to make a commitment to follow me. And so Jesus says to them, come to me. All you are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. And then he says, my yoke is easy, and my burdens are light. All the assignments that God gives, all of them, are assignments that people who respond to them and in faith follow his direction, discover it's the most wonderful part of living to fulfill his calling in our life. And he's called you to be a disciple maker, to be a gospelizer, an ambassador of Christ who actually communicates the gospel to others as God brings people into your life. That's your assignment. Now, I don't know what individually your spiritual gift is that God's gifted you with. He may have gifted you with a speaking gift or with a serving gift, as Peter puts it. But whatever it is, you will find it's the most wonderful activity in all of life is simply to act in obedience to Christ, your master, because he is your comfort in life and in death. This is uh, one of the most important motifs in this in this letter is about citizenship. And I'll tell you a little bit more about that. If I hope you read, I'd like to ask you to read two things this week. Read Acts 16, which tells the story of the gospel first coming to Philippi and see what happens. It's very fascinating. The second thing is read this, this little book, this epistle to the Philippians every day. Wow, isn't that hard? It might, it might take you 12 minutes but it's very brief. But read it, and read it as an act of worship to God. And what you'll discover, one of the things you will discover as we study this book and see how it was founded and so forth, this city was special because everybody who was a citizen of this city, Philippi, was a citizen of Rome. Being a citizen of Rome gave you all kinds of privileges. I could, I could say some stuff I shouldn't say, but... Being a, citizen, being a citizen in the Roman Empire gave you great privileges. 
And the apostle Paul was a citizen of Rome. They didn't know that. And they treated him as though he was not a citizen of Rome. And what they did, they threw him in jail. They beat him really bad and they threw him in jail. And then they found out he was a citizen and they wanted him to leave town. They said, okay, just release him and tell them to go on their way. And he says, oh, they don't have the right to do that. They've, they've treated me as though I was not a citizen of Rome. Let them come and, and free us themselves. Now, here's why this was so important. Is Paul, as it will explain in this letter, that we, our citizenship is in heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven. I know a lot of people are trying to get out of California. Guess what? Your citizenship is in heaven. And God can work in your life in California as well as he can work in your life in Oklahoma or Texas or Nevada. He is, he is not short on resources. You understand that, right? He's not short on resources. He owns everything. When it says he owns the cattle on a thousand hills, that's just an expression to say that there's no limits to his, what he possesses. And you're his child. Your father owns the cattle on a, on a thousand hills, and you are his heir, co-heirs with Jesus Christ. But your real citizenship is in heaven. It doesn't matter where you live. Even if you move to Nevada, your citizenship in heaven remains the same. Because that's where your real citizenship is. And that's what Paul, he's going to make that point in this chapter. Because citizenship in Philippi was a big deal because they felt like privileged people. They had this standing in the Roman Empire that was very special because most people couldn't get citizenship. You know, there are those places where it's really hard to get citizenship if you weren't born there. You ever heard of that? Yeah, well, God, what God does when he saved you is he made you a citizen of the kingdom of God. The way Paul puts it is that he, he transferred you out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his dear son so that now you're citizens of the kingdom of his dear son. And you have all the privileges of a citizen of heaven. That's, that's a wonderful truth. And so the people who are going to take the gospel to the world are his bondservants. That is saved people. Really what this is, it's not some special class of believers. It's true believers. Every person who comes to faith in Jesus Christ becomes a saint, set apart to God in Christ Jesus. And you have the privilege of taking the gospel wherever you go. If you're taking a trip somewhere in a foreign country, like Oklahoma City, uh, you, can, you can take the gospel with you. And you can share the gospel. You can bring the gospel to people. You can actually become a, you can function like an ambassador of Jesus Christ, a spokesman for Jesus Christ. That's who you are. And that's who is going to take the gospel to the world. And the difference, the difference that the gospel makes is it turns you into saints, set apart to God, specially privileged in God's kingdom, blessed beyond our ability to, to describe. I don't even know how to begin to describe all the blessings that God has lavished on you as a believer. When Paul says in Ephesians 1 that we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies in Christ, that's the most absolute statement you could ever make. Every spiritual blessing? 
You know, it is really funny. There are groups where, depending on the blessing you've had, you're, you're rated up here, or here, or here, or here, or here. And the fact is, if you just read the Gospels and read what Jesus says, you can tell there is no hierarchy. It is every person, the lowliest person, is as privileged as the, the most highly regarded person in the body of Christ because we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies in Christ. And he wants you to relish that. He wants you to enjoy it. He wants you to have joy over it. And then he says, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. What's significant here is it's his central concern, Paul's central concern is salvation in Christ. But guess who initiated this salvation? Have you ever heard this, this idea that God is very stern and angry at sin and his son try, is try, came to the earth in order to appease him so that he would start loving you? You ever heard such a silly thing? There are some guys who preach that. Let me tell you how stupid that is. What does it say in John 3.16? And I know every person here knows John 3.16. For God. So who loved the world? And what did he do? He sent his son. The son came into the world because the father loved us and sent his son to die for us. And that, that's, what, that's what Paul talks about all the time. He talks about from all the time he talks about how God has sent his son into the world to rescue us, to save us, to bring us into relationship with him. And so the deacons in the church, let me explain to you what a deacon is since he mentions it. It's the word for minister, diakonos. Every believer is a diakonos. Every one of us are servants of Christ. But deacons in the church are those that have been set apart to do to represent the church and manage the church's resources in meeting the needs of people within and without, of the, without the flock, outside the flock. In other words, when God brings people into our, into our midst or somehow connects it to us and they have a need and we have the resources to meet the need, what did Jesus say we should do? He said we should meet the need, right? And so what deacons are is they are basically ministers of mercy. They have the responsibility to manage what the saints give in order to meet needs, to use that, those resources to meet needs in people's lives. They have to have wisdom, and they have to have love for people. We have three deacons. Are you, all three deacons here? Why does the deacon stand up? Uh, Cecil is back there in the back, and Dave's right here. He can stand, I know. These are our three deacons, so if you need, uh, if you need anything, talk to them. <laughs> they love seeing God meet needs. And that's a, that's a special service. It's so Christ-like to be a diakonos, a servant of Christ, to meet the needs of his people. And they're single out in this letter because if you notice in 2.14, it says, do all things without grumbling and disputing. And if you have read the Old Testament, you know back in Exodus 16, it talks about, in fact, 16 and 17, it says the whole congregation of Israel uh, grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And these complaints were against God, but Moses was a representative of God. A lot of murmuring and, com murmuring and complaining going on. But Paul says there shouldn't be any murmuring and complaining in the church. And so 
the, one of the requirements of a deacon is he can't be a murmurer or a complainer. He has to be a minister of mercy and desire to see God meet the needs of people by the resources he passes through us. And so what is the result with the gospel? That is, when people receive the gospel, what's the result? Look at verse 2. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a marvelous example of how Paul turns whatever he touches into the gospel. Everything he talks about, it, it turns into the gospel. The common greeting at this time in the, in the Roman Empire, it's a Greek-speaking empire, was kyrene, which means greetings. But the word charis means grace, and that's what he uses here. Gr- grace and peace. That's better than greetings. Grace and peace. And notice the order. It's not, it's not grace and peace to you, but grace to you and peace. Grace given to God's people results in peace among them. How can, how can a church possibly have peace? It's, it seems so impossible, doesn't it? That we could be at peace with God and with one another? It's grace. That's an act of grace. Now, grace, uh, we usually, you heard it defined as unmerited favor. What it's referring to is God giving himself freely for us, to us. God gives himself to us. Of course, Christ, we know how he gave himself for us, but the Father also gives himself to us. He gives us his life and the Son to us. He gives us his Son. He gives himself. And that's what grace is. And so this greeting represents Paul's gospel in a very profound way. Grace is the sum total of God's activity towards his people. He's given himself to us. What are your needs? Think about this. I was, sharing, my, I was talking to a young man the other day. We were meeting for discipleship, and, and uh, we got to talking about this whole thing of anxiety and worry. He's 30 years old. I'm an expert on anxiety. I lost my hearing aid this morning. <laughs> I couldn't find it because I put it in the wrong pocket. Um, but he's 30. What has he got to worry about? And, uh, and yet... We both agreed that the worry is caused when we're not, we're no longer controlled, our thought life is no longer controlled with who God is and who we are to God. We're now controlled by my resources, my ability, and the challenge I face. And so I get filled with anxiety. And that's why Peter says, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. What he means by that is, Humble yourself under what God's allowing to happen in your life because he's in control. Do you know that all that stuff that's hurting you right now couldn't touch you if God didn't allow it? And some people, when you tell them that, they get mad at God. In fact, I've had that question asked. Why would God allow this? I don't know. But I know this. He's in control. Uh, This answer that Somebody ask somebody, you know, they'll ask, why did God allow this? And, and you want to say, he didn't have anything to do with this. Let me tell you something. If God didn't have anything to do with this, we are in big trouble. If God is not sovereign over all things, including every atom in the universe, then we are in great trouble. And so we serve a God who has absolute sovereignty over all things. So that's why Paul says, humble yourself under God's mighty hand. That means stop acting like to God, I don't deserve this. Why are you letting this happen to me? 
Instead, humble yourself under his mighty hand. And what do, how do I do that? He said, by casting your anxieties on him. Just tell him what you're fearful of. And say, God, I'm worried sick about this. I feel like I don't know what's going to happen here. And you, you cast it on him. And he says, this is why. Because it matters to him about you. I recognized something the other day. I was in a conversation. Somebody was really complaining about something, going on and on and on, and complaining. And this is, at first I was just irritated because I didn't, I've already, I get it, I understand. But they wanted to give me more detail. And then I thought, you know what? I'm exactly like that. I do the exact same thing. I want you to know exactly how, what happened to me, how it happened, and all the details. And I forget, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Is God sovereign over all things? Does he really have control of all things? So that, you know, things can only happen to you if he allows it, right? And it's okay to ask why if we really ask this way, Lord, I, I really want to understand what you're doing and why you're allowing me to go through this. The Apostle Paul had that happen. Remember in Second Corinthians 1, he said, I don't want you Corinthians to be uh, ignorant or unaware of what happened to me when I was in Asia Minor, how I was tested beyond my ability to bear. I even despaired of life. I thought I was going to die. Then he says, so that I would no longer trust in myself, but in God who raises the dead. And some of you are thinking, I never trust in myself. Oh, yes, you do all the time. Happens all the time. We slip into that so easily. It's so easy to look at the challenge before us and take inventory of our ability and our resources. And if my, it's like this. This is a great illustration of what anxiety is. Anxiety is when you're driving down a freeway across the desert and it says, you see a sign that says 150 miles to the next gas and you look down at your, your gauge and it says empty. You know that feeling? that you don't have the resources to meet the challenge. That's what happens to us. And so what he says to do is, I I want you, I'm going to allow you to have shortages. I'm going to allow you to go through times when you don't have the ability or the resources to meet the challenge before you. Why? So you trust me. So you will trust me. You know, some of us think, well, if, if there's nothing else I can do, I'll pray. No, the first thing you must do is pray. That's the thing to do. I don't care what your challenges. I care what your challenges are, but it doesn't matter what they are. The the one that can can meet your need is the living God, isn't it? The one who gave you eternal life, the one who sent His Son for you. Now it would be one thing if the the one who was responsible for you was stingy. God's not stingy. It says he's, he so loved the world he gave his only begotten son. The, the Bible says in 1 Timothy 2.4, God desires all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. God wants you to enjoy salvation. He wants you to enjoy his deliverance. He wants you to come to trust him to the point that you cast it up on him and then he meets your need and you get to testify about it. Has anybody here ever had God meet, I mean, a monster need in your life? Yeah. It's amazing, isn't it, how how God can meet our needs and how slow we are to turn to him. 
I, I, you know, you got, it's almost in your mind you've got this whole list of things you're going to turn to before you turn to him. So the results of the gospel is grace and peace. God gives us grace and the result is peace. He gives us himself. And so when I, I go before God and, and I think about what needs I have at the present moment, what, what needs I'm facing in the near future, and I come before him, I need to stop and realize he's the God of the universe. All he wants me to do is cast my anxieties on him. Okay, I'm afraid I'm going to go I'm going to go broke next month. I'm giving this to you, Father. That's what we're supposed to do. I'm giving this to you. And then he opens doors of all kinds, and he's, he meets our needs in all kinds of different ways, very unique ways sometimes. And sometimes, like the Apostle Paul said, I'd rather go home to be with Christ. But for your sake, I want to stay and remain on and, and minister to you. Well, sometimes what God does, he meets our need in the most unusual way, and he takes us home. I don't know if you've ever talked to anybody who was dying and knew it. It's amazing to hear a believer who has faith in Christ, who has faith in the living God, talk when they know they're facing death. They're breathing their last. It's amazing the things that they say, how the confidence they have in Christ I suppose that's the big test. When you finally face one of those times and you discover what kind of faith do you have? Is my faith really in God or in something else? So what's the relevance to us? Well, we have to take seriously our role in partners of the gospel. I don't know if you've ever even picked up on that kind of terminology, but that's what we are. We're partners in the gospel with God. And we ought to do all that we can to remove the roadblocks in our lives that would keep us from, become, being, uh, from being effective in this advance of the gospel. God wants to use you in the advance of the gospel. And so I need to work on these things, and I take this seriously myself. For example, perpetual immaturity. In verse 9 of chapter 1, it says uh, that I, Paul's praying for these Philippians, and he says, I pray that you will have real knowledge and all discernment. I want you to be filled with real knowledge and all discernment, to know the truth of the gospel and its implications in life. And so you can discern. Discernment means you can tell the difference between fake and real, and the important and the unimportant. And then the second uh, thing that a roadblock is cowardice. He's going to deal with this in verse 12. He says, trust in God's sovereignty and faithfulness. God's sovereign and he's faithful. He's more faithful than you. What happens when you become unfaithful? God says he remains faithful and he cannot deny himself. And so he's going to work in our lives. What about division in the body of Christ? That will sure kill us in being effective in the advance of the gospel. You want to undo our effectiveness in the gospel? We just need to have a big division. And so Paul says to them, stand firm in one spirit and one mind, striving together for the gospel. Work as a team. Our goal is very simple. It's to advance the gospel in our own lives and the lives of others. That's why we exist. The next thing he deals with is pride. We need uh, bond servants, not prima donnas. We don't need people who are just giants of this kind or that, and they're just so good and so incredible. But in Christ, what we are is bond servants. And that's what Paul said he was. 
Now, sometimes people are going to be impressed with you. I'm not saying nobody's going to be impressed with you, but that's not the goal. The goal is to be a humble servant of Christ, to be a bondservant of Christ. And then murmuring, and he says in chapter 2, verse 14, stop grumbling and complaining. Is there anything to grumble and complain about? Oh, sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. There's all kinds of things to grumble and complain about. <laughs> but we don't, we're not to do that because Christ is on his throne. Legalism. We need love relating instead of law giving. We need to love people. We need to manifest the love of Christ to them through the gospel. Worldliness, according to chapter 3, verse 4, it says that makes us enemies of the cross. And worldliness is simply when, I, when my main motivation is doing what the world offers me, pursuing what the world offers me. Materialism is one form of it. That I just need this, and I need this, and I need this. Judy and I have been talking about this lately because we got all this stuff on our, we have about six and a half acres, and we've got five acres of junk. We got so much stuff sitting on our place, and we're trying to think, okay, how can we get rid of this before we die? Because that'd be a, a horrible thing to leave our children. I guess we could buy them a dump truck and leave that to them. But it's amazing. Uh, worldliness is, we're, we're told that in First John, that worldliness is constantly appealing to us to love things instead of God. If you were to take a piece of paper and write down, what are the five things that the world offered me this past week that I should love instead of God? You could easily come up with five things, a hundred things. Constantly, we're told, this is what you need. This will make your life better. They make you promises that put God to shame in the promises he made. He's, he's promised to give you eternal salvation. But people offer you stuff all the time in the world. And the next thing I notice in chapter 4, the first nine verses, is distracted leadership in the church. This is what can kill our effectiveness in, in the gospel. Listen to this. This is chapter 4. Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see... See, he's in prison. And he says, I long to see you. You are my joy and crown. In this way, stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. I urge you, Odia and Syntyche... These two ladies, what names, huh? You, you're never, if you have a baby daughter, there you have a name, Syntyche. Some guys call her Suntachi. I, I urge Euodia and, and Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. Indeed, true companion, I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel together with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. In other words, these gals had been very effective in the work of the gospel and supporting Paul, and now they're at each other's throat. That sounds like, you've never seen that, have you? You ever seen two Christians get at each other, get upset with each other, so they become ineffective in the gospel? It's amazing. And then he goes on, he says, Rejoice in the Lord always again, I say rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. Maranatha, the Lord is coming. The idea there, gentle spirit, is I don't have to. I don't have to have this. It's okay to say, you know, I, I would like to have this. I would like to see this happen. 
But I don't have to have anything that God doesn't provide because the Lord is near. The Lord is near. He's coming. And he may mess up your plans. You know, you've, you've got this big plan that you're going to carry out instead of being faithful to the Lord. And he says, it's just it's going to ruin your plans because the Lord's coming. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be known to God. The idea of that is that, first of all, you give God thanks for the situation you're in. That you're bright enough, you know that you need to turn to him and ask him for help in this situation. And so you let your request be known to him with thanksgiving. With thanksgiving. And then a little further down in that chapter, he says that failure to invest in the work of the gospel, in bound in verse, 20, in verse uh, 10, notice this, a failure to invest in the gospel. I rejoice in the Lord greatly just that now at last you have received, revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity because he's in prison. He's in, he's in prison. They've sent a man to, to minister to him. At some cost. Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstance I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I can live in any circumstances by Christ strengthening me. Nevertheless, you have done well to share with me in my affliction. You yourselves also know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving but you alone. For even in Thessalonica you sent a gift more than once for my needs. Not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit which increases in your account. Uh, I love that attitude that Paul had. He saw that the real significance about them giving to him was their benefit, that they would benefit from this. I've never in my whole life, never have I ever given anything for the work of Christ that didn't bring me profit in my spirit, never. It's one of the things that we are set free to do is to give for the advance of the gospel and to give ourselves, and to give our resources. So we are advancing the gospel. That's our calling. Our calling is to advance the gospel, both here and wherever God takes you. Some of you have been called to San Francisco and Oakland, and, and I'm telling about you, you commute there, and you work there, and so you meet people there. And God is, wants to use us as, as those who advance the gospel of Jesus Christ. He wants to use us as representatives of Christ. We are bond servants. You know, what kind of credentials do you have? Oh, you are saints and bond servants of Christ. Now, don't get a t-shirt. Just, this is just for you to know and understand that you have the authority from Christ to share the gospel. To share the gospel. And you know, sharing the gospel is like a confession. For you to confess to somebody... I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. He's my hope in life and death. My Savior, Jesus Christ. That's my confession to you. I want to pray. Why don't we stand together? Let me close in prayer. Our Father, thank you for the privilege we have of meeting together 
and building one another up in the most holy faith. We're thankful that we are a family of God, that you have saved us, made us saints, made us bondservants of Jesus Christ, and we are so privileged, and we thank you for it. So I pray today we could have a great time of fellowship as we share a meal together. We pray that you would bless this food and bless our conversations. May they be encouraging and uplifting. We pray that we could be a great, great encouragement to each other as we all are involved in the advance of the gospel. I pray that you would make us fruitful and faithful, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. To respond to this message or learn more, please visit calvarytruth.org.